0: Okay, I don't think I'm... Oh, here we go. Thank you, Andy. I thought, sitting on the front row here, about the principal or office of deacon. And I thought to myself, you know, what are my first thoughts or recollections of a deacon in a Baptist church? And uh, some of those are not too good, as I think back over the years... Some of them are good. It's kind of a mixed uh, understanding in my own heart and mind about it. Uh, I remember early on, when I was a kid, the deacon was going to be the one that stopped you running in the hall. (laughs) right? Maybe get a hold to your ear, or you're sitting in the pew cutting up as a child, and your parents are not around, but the good deacon you meet his eyes and you're like whoa I'm in trouble so you stop talking to another degree uh, I can remember as a youth minister in my early 20's that I had invited an African-American kid to come and play basketball with the youth group and after that event A a deacon came to me in a little Southern Baptist church and said, We have a high school gym for that kind. That's why they have that school up there, but they won't be playing at our church. And, you know, I've always been sometimes quick to speak, and and I just said to him, Well, you're going to answer to the Lord for that. And as far as my concern, I'm not going to stop. Of course, we were not there too much longer. The Lord moved us off to seminary, which was a good thing. (laughs) But I have some fond memories. My dad was a deacon, and I remember uh, Dr. Wayne Robertson having my dad sit in a chair in front of the entire church and asking him a series of questions. And I, I remember that. I remember my dad's attitude about his pastor always was one of supporting not running down, even in difficulty. Even if he didn't agree totally, there was never a time when he would go after him. Uh, He had respect uh, for that office. So I don't know what your thoughts are. I don't know if you were blessed to grow up in a church as a young child and, and be around deacons. If you were, I hope that the standing was such as verse 13, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's obviously what you want to take place. But tonight, we're going to address the diaconate, the diaconate. And that's just taking deacon and making it into the office, diaconate. So, there are two passages I want to look at. Uh, Make your way first over to the book of Acts. Some of you already knew this and you anticipated Acts chapter 6. Brother David already mentioned it. Let me give you a preliminary observation, just a couple of them. The word deacon, diakonos, servant, can be used in a very general way. It means to be a servant, it means to be a minister, it means to be a helper. And often when we think of the term minister, it always in our mind pops over or springs over to ecclesiastical things. In other words, stuffy tie. Caller, minister, right? But generally in the New Testament, the word is not used in the technical nor ordained sense of the word. Minister was used in the sense of a servant. It was used in the sense of a helper. The verb, however, the verb also is used as to serve or to wait in the case of Acts 6 upon a table diakoneo is the word used to serve. So the noun and the verb forms are very common in the New Testament. So there's a sense, don't miss this, where all of God's people are called to be deacons. There is that sense when you take the word serve, we're all called to be servants of the living God. Do you remember what Jesus, the Son of God, had to say about this? The Son of God did not come to, to be served. That's the verb. And what verb is it? That is actually an an aorist passive verb of Neo given to us. And then it says he did not come to be served but to serve. There's the word again with a different verb ending. That's an aorist active meaning the serving part was actually to give his life. That's the ultimate service that he gave as a ransom for many. There's your word. Same word, given in a general sense. So we're, we're also called upon many, many times in the church, in the Bible, to serve one another. It, is this not one of the things that makes the body of Christ what it is? We've learned this through Ephesians. Also in Galatians 5.13 it says, but through love serve one another. To serve one another is simply part of being a Christian. It's part of being a disciple. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 13 we have one of the most powerful illustrations of what this actually looks like. When the Lord Jesus Christ takes on the posture of a servant. He gets a towel. And what does he do? John 13. He washes the feet of his disciples. He challenges them to be servants. And he says, follow this example. Now, a lot of churches follow it all the way up to the point where they do foot washing once a month. And this, there was a church nearby where we grew up that did foot washing. When it comes to the diaconate, however, let's move away a little bit from the minister or servant or service aspect of it in a general sense. When it comes to this particular office, right... When, you come, when it comes to biblical church leadership, we have elders and deacons. When we're dealing with the diaconate, we're dealing with a more technical use of an office. Okay, That's important for all of us to think about. It's obvious that we do not have as much given in the Word of God about the diaconate as we do the eldership. I don't know if you figured this out as you read through the New Testament, but it's unequivocally clear. When you start, for instance in Philippians I think it's a very important text of scripture Uh, you don't have to turn there but listen to how Paul will greet them. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers plural, you see it? with the overseers in one church in Philippi and deacons so I'm positive that this particular address is to the office of deacon. Okay, assuming that Philippians is a uh, the book of Philippians is a prison epistle, and we know if you study the New Testament, there are certain books that we refer to as the prison epistles, meaning Paul wrote them actually from prison. Okay, let's assume that it is. It was probably written around 54 to 55 AD. That would mean that within 20 years or so after the church's initial founding in the book of Acts, we have the office of deacon emerging. Something to think about. There's a distinction between elders and deacons in the New Testament. The deacons are not responsible for governing or shepherding the flock. And so, as we look at the qualifications, the only one that is not almost verbatim connected. To the qualifications of an elder <clears throat> would be that qualification that one is apt to teach so please note this truth clearly however the deacon ministry is complementary to the eldership and i'm not using the word c o m p l i i'm using c o m p l e it is complementary to the eldership okay Now, let's do it in two ways. We're going to look at it in two different areas. First, the duties of the New Testament deacon. And let's open our Bibles again, Acts 6. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Somebody wasn't getting a fried chicken. In the South, that's what we would say. The whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid laid their hands on them. Notice verse 7. And the word of God "...continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests..." Anytime you have priests getting saved, something must be right, right? "...priests became obedient to the faith." All right, those duties. So in Acts 6, we find that widows were grumbling. The Hellenistic widows and the Jewish widows are in an administrative crisis. Now, please follow the text. The apostles were in charge of this task at this point but notice what happens in verse 2 there is that word diakoneo used for us in verse 2 that they might serve They, they were summoned that they may serve tables there is your word there's no place in this passage where it says these men were deacons it doesn't give us that word it doesn't say office but what is clear from Acts 6 is that the bare, at bare minimum, these men had to be a prototype of the diaconate. These men were, a chosen, were actually chosen to alleviate the apostles or to, chosen to help alleviate from the apostles so that they could devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So they were relieved, in a sense, from the service of tables, which would have been a benevolent ministry. Why? In order to devote themselves to preaching and teaching and prayer. This is the beginning of the diaconate in seed form. It was clearly complementary to the eldership. It was a ministry that came alongside the apostles in order to free them up. And enable them to fulfill the ministry of the word and prayer. When we talk about the duties of a deacon. I think in the Bible it's going to be very sketchy. There's not... A lot of places where it's fleshed out more than what we have in this particular text of Scripture. What can be deduced from Acts 6 is the idea of serving tables. It was taking care of the needs of those who were poor. Taking care of the needs of those who were needy in the body. The meaning of the word is to take care of, to serve, and to wait on. So within the scope of deacon's duties, you would see the distribution of funds that will be given to relieve the poor, for instance, in a distribution of clothing, distribution of food, maybe shelter. The New Testament deacon is a man that you could identify as an agent of mercy or an agent of relief to those who are in need. He oversees relief efforts. He coordinates care for those who are in need, and he's involved in the administration of that particular care. So as we look at the New Testament, especially as we look at 1 Timothy, one of the areas where there was a great deal of need in the church was the care of, say it, widows. In the first century, once a widow's husband died, she didn't have the benefits of a 401k. Is that what it's called? Whatever it's called. I should know what it is. I guess. But, but let's say it this way. She didn't have the benefits of Social Security right? There's no benefit. There there were no benefits whatsoever for a widow, so they were dependent on the life of the church. They were dependent upon the church. This was a high priority. In our context, we deal with widows. We deal with single moms. We, at times, deal with people who are jobless. We deal with people unable to work and take care of themselves. We Seek to take care of people when they have surgeries. And all of you know this in your Sunday school classes and beyond. So, deacons are responsible for organizing that care, taking care of those physical needs. To use modern terminology, and you may or may not like this, but the diaconate is the church's welfare agency. Now, I say it like that because it's the church's, not the government's. Okay? The diaconate oversees the operational aspects of the ministry to those who are in need. And I want to ask you a question. Is this a vital, necessary ministry in the church of our God? You better believe it. Our God has incredible concern for the poor, for the needy, and the helpless. Consider, if you would, if you just have a cursory reading to the Old Testament, especially in the Pentateuch, you're going to find our God is very much concerned about widows, And orphans. He is very much concerned of what happens to strangers and the poor. In the Minor Prophets, we have a continual indictment of God upon the people for failing to take care of those who are oppressed and the widows and the needy. So the Lord has a special place in His heart for those who are in need. So it's easy for us to forget this segment in our society. We can easily make assumptions about where people are financially, where people are materially. So the Lord established... The Deacon Ministry has the special arm of the church to take care of those who are in need. We are commanded to take care of them and serve them and help them meet their needs. James would remind us that religion that is true and undefiled before God, the Father, is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James 127. So the diaconate is the office and the ministry that looks for those. Who have needs. We don't want to differentiate this too far. But as the elders govern and take care of the spiritual needs. The deacon body takes care of the physical needs. That's the way it's presented in Acts chapter 6. Often as deacons are ministering mercy to people. We, often, we, know, true, we know for sure that they end up ministering to the spiritual needs as well. Because physical needs are often connected to what kind of needs? Spiritual needs. So we need to have men who are not only well organized and know how to distribute funds, but we need to have men who are qualified to take care of such an important responsibility in the Lord's church. 1 Timothy. You did so well on that one. We'll move to the second one. Those we would refer to as the duties, and here we land on the qualifications. Going back to 1 Timothy 3, I want to remind you of the chronology of the New Testament at this point. Now, think about this the eldership has roots all the way back in the Old Testament. You do know this, right? Certainly, uh, there were developments in the intertestamental time as well, but the eldership is fully in place in the earliest times in the New Testament church. It borrowed from the synagogue, which in essence borrowed from the Old Testament. So you had elders from Jerusalem right from the beginning. The diaconate does not have that precedence in the Old Testament or in the intertestamental time or in the synagogue. The New Testament church sees this development because of certain needs. And then under the leadership of the apostles, they act to meet those needs. So if we assume that Acts 6 takes place somewhere between 34 and 35 AD, roughly... Then you go to the middle of the 50s where Paul addresses elders and deacons. And then when you get to 1 Timothy, it's probably written around 62 to 63 A.D. It is in 1 Timothy where Paul starts to lay out formally the qualifications for the office. Does that make sense? Just a quick rundown of that. So it is in 1 Timothy where Paul starts to lay it out. So from very on, early on, the apostles were concerned about qualified men that that will get into the office of those who serve in this particular function in the New Testament church. So in a sense, the theme of verse of First Timothy is found in 1 Timothy 3.15. Look at this. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So in other words, there's order. Uh, we might say there are household codes and rules. There's a way that Paul anticipates the church of the living God to function. Okay? Now, at the end of verse 7, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsider, outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. And then the Bible says in verse 8, deacons likewise. And I think it's important for us to think of that for a moment. Likewise, that begins in verse eight is likely tied back to verse two. Therefore, an overseer must be. There's your verb. The verb dry, verbs are important. Okay, they 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 drive the text. So, whereas an elder must be, when you pick up in verse eight, carrying the verb, deacons likewise we could tra- we could put in deacons must be. Okay, that's the connection. In the text, all these qualifications must be present in one degree or another in a maturing and growing person that is under consideration. Just like with the eldership, does this mean that there will be perfection? No. Okay? But let's go through these again. Some of them are going to be redundant from last time, but let's look at them. Dignified, the Bible says, must be dignified. This means there is a level of seriousness to this man. By seriousness, it doesn't mean someone who doesn't have a sense of humor. It's not like we're going to look for the person in the church who never tells a joke or never smiles. Some of you don't smile a lot, let's be honest, right? But the fact of the matter is, the idea here is it requires seriousness. That person will be serious and you will know that there are times that require the man to be serious. Okay? So that's dignified. He, is, he must be a person who is worthy of that particular respect. Second, not double-worded is the translation. This, is not, this means that the individual is not double-tongued. He is sincere. Why is this important? It's because as you minister in the body of Christ... You will become privy to information that is sensitive in nature. You need to be a person who speaks with words of integrity. And you know when it is prudent not to repeat an issue or to be double-tongued. I'm looking at every one of you. Right? Because we know full well that this goes across the board in church life, no matter if you're at the office of a deacon or not. But in particular, if you can't keep your mouth shut, you don't need to serve as a deacon. Right? If you become privy to things and you're going to be a tongue-wagger, then you're out. Just go ahead and do the church a favor and don't do it because the Bible clearly says you can't be that way, all right? Number three, not having much wine. You know, it's the same as an elder, but whereas it was in that particular context don't linger over the wine, here it is not having much wine. What does that mean? Well, ultimately it means he needs to be a ex- good example of sobriety and self-control. He cannot be a person who likes his beer and drinks too much wine. In this, he demonstrates that he, he, if he does that, in those two things, saying, man, I'm just a guy that loves my beer, I'm a guy that has to have my wine, then you are demonstrating something called clouded judgment. It's not a sobriety test where they're going to check your blood alcohol level. In the church, it's an issue of what kind of judgment will you have, okay? So as an elder or a deacon, you are to be an example of sobriety, self-control, especially in the area of alcohol. Number four, not greedy for material gain. Now, it's pretty obvious that during this time frame in Acts 6, who would be dealing with the funds that needed to be given in order to facilitate the ministry? It would have been the deacons. The diaconate will involve the handling of finances. Now, at our church, we, ca- we have all kinds of things in line to protect us of this, in this area, but here is a direct access that is certain when you're dealing with funds to help out people materially. If they're to serve in this particular vocation of a deacon, they need to be content with what they have and not be greedy for material gain. Does that make sense? That's why it's laid out that way. Five, they hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. The mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. In studying this, I think there are two things that are at work when it's said of a deacon who holds to the mystery of the faith. There would be one element that is doctrinal. There would be one element that is moral. So to hold to the mystery of the faith would be to hold to the content of the orthodox Christian faith. It matters what you believe. It matters. So holding to the mystery of the faith will certainly have an orthodox element to it. They are men who are sound in their doctrine, but they do it with a clear conscience, knowing what the Word of God says. Now some of you may be fearful. If someone submits your name and they say, we think that so-and-so should serve as a deacon. And we interview you and talk to you. Some of you are going to think, man, I'm waving the white flag. I just don't know. Well, that's what training's for. I think the bigger question at that point is what kind of servant are you before you are asked to be a deacon? I mean, it's almost like in Baptist life, you don't serve at all. Then you're asked and you're like, yeah, I'm ready to serve. Well, what were you before? Well, you're already serving with, with that kind of gift. Were you someone who sought to meet the needs Uh, Of those in the church body. So the idea is that their life. When it comes to the moral element. Lives up to what they believe. That would be the moral element. So both the doctrinal and moral. The idea is that their life. Lives up to what they believe. They believe right. And they live right. They have received the truth. They walk in accordance. With the truth. To hold to the mystery of the faith. With a good conscience. You could say it like this. They walk their talk, and their talk is right. They walk their talk, and their talk is right. So that's the issue of holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Number six, they are tested and proven blameless. The fact of the matter is, deacons live out their life in front of people, right? Their faith is seen in action. The question is, is he proven a proven disciple of the Lord? Is his discipleship beyond question? The idea of proven blameless could be through examination. And we will certainly have some of that. But mainly it has to do, does his doctrine and what he believes comport into his life that issues forth into God the living? That's the the real issue. Number seven, the term here. All right, you ready for this one? This could... This is where the text gets a little jumpy for people um, <laughs> in a lot of different ways. But the Bible says they must hold to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified. Okay. The term is gune. Just go and call your wife that tonight, right? You're a gune right? Well, the question is, is it women or wives of the husbands? Because technically, when you look at the NAS, the New York American Standard, it translates it women, straightforward. It will say, women likewise must be dignified. And the big question the million-dollar question is, this, does this mean that there is an office for a woman in the diaconate? It could be women, generically, but it also could be speaking directly to the wife of the husband. The same actually exists for the term man, or can it be husband? So, again, if you have the NAS, it says women. Yet in the marginal reading of the NAS... For women, you can look at this, it says it it can either be deaconesses or deacons' wives. So they're readily understanding that gune can be used in two different ways. The goal here is not to start a riot tonight. All right? It seems that it must be explicitly wives of deacons or female deacons. I think that is the logical choices that we have, one or the other. I would argue... That it is not an argument for a female deacon as an office holder. The reason is, as you look at this passage, what is obvious? And let them also be tested first and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. All right, verse 12, what do you do? Immediately, let deacons each be the husband of one wife. What do you see logically there? There's, there's everything given for the man. There's one verse or so given to the ladies, wives, and then it's a return right back to man. And furthermore, we could argue that it doesn't say, if the woman serves, let her be a woman of one man. Right? That, that's not given in the text either. So, you have these female qualifications inserted in the middle of the qualifications for a deacon. Here is what I would suggest. In the flow of the context, Paul is dealing with explicit, explicitly male deacons. And then he's dealing with wives who assist their husbands in the diaconate. How crucial is that for the church? That wives are actually serving with their husbands. Now, here's just a practical, smart uh, thing to consider. Is the deacon someone who would be in the homes of others absolutely if he is dealing with widows guess what he would be in a single woman's home from time to time back then that was often the death of men I mean, they would die early early on so you could have a deacon visiting a home with a 30 year old widow by himself which you have no sense whatsoever if you do that just come on up here and let me slap you before you think about going right <laughs> So it seems to me that Paul with his sensitivity to moral issues is probably he probably has the deacons wives in mind understanding that the deacons wives would often assist in the execution of the diaconal ministry okay so the work of the diaconate seems at times to necessitate the involvement of women the duty of the deacon may fall to the wife of the deacon Without having an official office of the deacon. And I think this is true even in our church right now. Because even though we've gone for years without recognizing that office per se. We still have deacons in this church who are serving. And this needs to be this way for the sense of propriety. And the sense of balance. The wives can certainly come alongside and offer valuable assistance in the diaconal ministry. So. I hold that this is the wife, the wives of deacons. Okay. I'll go ahead and tell most of you that I know serve. You really outpunted your coverage, men, when you married your wife, and she probably loves the Lord and is more dedicated than you are. Ain't? Yes, yes. So we need to thank the Lord, and, and this is also so true when it comes to the pastorate as well. Uh, and how much my wife helps me in the ministry. So, what does it say about her? She is also to be dignified. It means worthy of respect. She's not to be a slanderer. She can keep information to herself that she may be privy to. Why? Because her husband is involved in the service of the church. She is to be temperate. This means self-control. She should show good judgment. She is to be faithful in all things. She is to be dependable. She is to be trustworthy and faithful to her husband and her family. And the church. We want you to serve, but your wife's character and her walk is also important. Right? These faithful women who labor in the work and demonstrate good character actually accentuate the office of the deacon and the man who is serving. Or serving, Right? Okay, number eight. A one-woman man. That is... A man who is a faithful husband to his wife. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife. We unpacked this last time. So you can go back and listen to that sermon. But it is a one woman man. He has one wife and he is faithful to that wife. Okay? That's what it means. Number nine. Leading his own children and his household. Now, this is a little bit different than what's said to the elder in his admonishment. They are good managers of their children and their own household. Whereas with the elders, there was a direct parallel with family and church. The parallel is not made here, but it's still a requirement, right? He must be a man who is a leader in his home. He's a leader of a godly wife and obedient children. And I would ask the question, why is an exemplary home life to some degree so important in this text? Because it is in the home where real, authentic faith is most genuinely seen, right? We can all play looking good on Sunday. But the kind of Christian you are at home is the kind of Christian you are. We can act one way, stellar on Sunday, in the assembly of God's people, and yet how do we live at home? That's the real litmus test to who you are, what comes out of our mouths How do we treat our wives? How do we lead our children? Is that one pretty clear? It's important. Number 10, the result of having served well, this is an honorable standing. When you love and serve the Lord and serve the people of God, your character is seen and it is esteemed. It exemplifies the servant model of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're willing to serve just as our master served us. In doing so, the text says there is high honor and esteem in the church and I've watched this over the years in church life haven't watched it as much the last six and a half years because I'm not dealing as much with the deacon body per se as I did before but I've been in the front row seat of watching men as deacons grow in their faith as they see God at work you know as a deacon you're, you're kinda in the inner circle of watching how church life works you, have, you kinda have an upfront seat To what God is doing. And what does that do? It causes one's faith to grow. And then there's boldness that grows out of it. And thus, according to the word of God, he receives a good standing among God's people. All right, let's sum this up. Deacons, the deacon ministry is a servant of mercy, or a a New Testament deacon is a servant of mercy. He's a qualified man and he shows service to the body of Christ, he's a facilitator. Of meeting needs in the body of Christ. He facilitates service in the church to help direct others to serve the Lord. The New Testament deacon is a vital part of a church because our God is a God of mercy. Deacons meet needs according to the word. Deacons are accountable for specific commands. They support. This is important. If you can't support the ministry of the word, you're not a deacon. Think about how important this is. Deacons serve elders so they can lead. Deacons lead others so they can serve. Deacons unify the body around the Word. Oh, this is so vital. It's another arm or branch in the church to say the central thing that's most important in the life of our church is the Word of God. It's primary. It's central. And so... That's what the deacon ministry does. The deacons need a mission mindset. If you don't think it's important to take the gospel to our community and around the world, if you would be one that would say, I don't know why our church is involved in all that mission work. Why in the world would they want to fly over to Guatemala when we got people in Ozark that are lost? And I would say you're right, but I would ask you, you're concerned about that. But how many people have you talked to about Christ in the last year? Right? That's important for you to think about that. And why do we think it is important to, to take a mission team to Guatemala? There are multi, It's multifaceted, right? But here's what we know. Jesus told us to. To take the gospel to every ethnic group. That's what that means. Ethnos. To all nations. So if you don't have that commitment... To the overall mission. And your mindset is we just do it here only. But often you don't do it here either. But then you have the attitude that we shouldn't do it anywhere else. Then it would not be a good idea to serve. Especially in this church. Right? Because, and I would say any church. If you don't have that mission understanding in your mind. Okay? Deacons can't be small minded individuals engrossed in turf wars maintaining their rights, lobbying for their own causes. I can't tell you how many times I've sat through deacons' meetings, and I had some good ones in the past years. I've really never, well, I wouldn't say never. That's like when you deal with your wife. You never say, well, you never or you seldom, right? I probably shouldn't say that because I've certainly had times when one just comes back and bites you just out of nowhere, Right? But it's a sad thing when deacon ministry becomes people lobbying for their cause. And when that happens in the church, you see what I grew up in at Bowman Baptist Church, where they literally were almost throwing fists, punching one another over issues in the church and people wanting their way. Instead, they need to see the mission of the church and the work of the church and understand the mission. Every facet of their ministry is a part of the overarching mission. We are on a mission to make the gospel known among the nations, ultimately, right? We must not let the enemy turn the church inward on itself. That happens at times. Given what we know about the elders and deacons, what does it look like practically? I'm going to finish with that. But just for a moment, think back at Acts 6. Think about how strategic this was. The ministry was endangered. Why? Because the word of God was being left... To the side, really. The men of God could not study the Word of God to prepare to preach the Word of God and to pray. It was endangered, but then it was enhanced. It was endangered, and then it was enhanced. The ministry was enhanced. How? Because there were godly men that were smart enough to say, this has got to be fixed. We must put our attention toward the preaching of the Word. We cannot leave that. So the ministry was enhanced, but then the ministry was enlarged. I mean, just think of those words. The Word of God multiplied. God began to work. Church was, the church was healthy and organized. And, and deacon ministry and eldership is important in the church. God honors things done His way. And we can think about this through the years in FBCO. Great days. And God works in spite of people right? God works in spite of our failures, but we can't pull up to the table and say, well, we know the Bible says that, but we've done pretty good without it. That's not wise. When, you're under, when you understand what the Word of God says, you submit to that. You say, Lord, I see it in the Word of God, thus we will do it. Why? Because you are our God and you know how the church ought to operate. As a matter of fact, you're going to build this church, He's promised that he's going to do it. All right, let me wrap it up practically. The church appoints and follows leaders who are wholeheartedly committed to accomplishing the mission of Christ in the church. That's true of elders. That's true of deacons. Hear that again. The church appoints. Not me. The church appoints and follows leaders who are wholeheartedly committed to accomplishing the mission of the church. God appoints elders through the church. Acts chapter 20. I'm not going to go through that again. But the Holy Spirit raised them up. And Brother David and myself and Jeffrey and James and Blake, we've, we've talked about that. What, what if we throw this out there and there are none outside of us? That's not true. I know that there are some. But here's the deal. God raises them up. It is the Lord God, His Spirit, that raises those elders up in a church body to accomplish what that body needs. So we're going to trust the Lord to do that. So we ask the Spirit of God to show us who these men are in the church. These are men who, according to Hebrews 13, 17, you want to obey. Y'all know what Hebrews 13, 17 is? I just assumed that you knew it by heart. I mean, I figured it was one that you think about, contemplate, memorize, pray for your pastor every day. <clears throat> right? Hebrews 13, 17, listen, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch, overseer, of your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. So, that's elders. That's submitting to them. And I'm trying to get something across just as much as you would submit to the one you see up here all the time. And if I were to ask you... And encourage you something directly from the word. When we have lay elders in this church. Men of God who are called just like I am. They're just not paid staff. You are to submit to them. That's what the Bible would tell us to do. As those who are your leaders. And are, listen. If you're an elder then you're gifted of God to be that. The Holy Spirit of God has chosen you in a body to serve in that capacity. It's important to think about that. All right. Number two, the church affirms and honors leading servants who use their gifts to build up the body of Christ. Notice those, that terminology. Affirms, honors, leading servants who use their gifts to build up the body of Christ. Now this is going to include a variety of ministries within the church that are carried out by men and women. Why? The church is composed of ministers who multiply the gospel through the world. Throughout this world through the word. Don't forget the result of Acts 6, verse 7. So the preaching of God flourished. The number of disciples in Jerusalem were multiplied greatly. And if that's not enough, a large group of the priests became obedient to the faith. That's pretty awesome. The problems that arose in the church were threatening the growth of the church and the health of the church. But when biblical, Christ-honoring leaders responded to what was needed. The church reorganized for multiplication. Acts 6-7 is a byproduct of a biblical structure of church leadership. Listen to this. That's a key statement. Acts 6-7 is a byproduct of a biblical structure of church leadership. Elders, servant leaders, gave themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word and deacons, leading servants. So you have servant leaders who are elders. You have leading servants Who are deacons that meet needs supported by the and they supported the ministry of the word, they united the body of Christ together. And together, all members of the church are to minister in order to see the multiplication of the gospel throughout our neighborhoods and among the nations. All right. My watch is set a little fast. What time is it? Twenty after? Okay. Well.